Acts chapter 11. I'll be reading this evening uh, verses 1 through 18. Once again, listen now to the reading of God's holy word. Now the apostles and brethren who were in Judea heard that the Gentiles had also received the word of God. And when Peter came up to Jerusalem, those of the circumcision contended with him, saying, You went in to uncircumcised men and ate with them? But Peter explained it to them in order from the beginning, saying, I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision. An object descending like a great sheet let down from heaven by four corners, and it came to me, when I observed it intently and considered, I saw four-footed animals of the earth, wild beasts, creeping things, and birds of the air. And I heard a voice saying to me, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, No, not so, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has at any time entered my mouth. But the voice answered me again from heaven, What God has cleansed, you must not call common. Now this was done three times, and all were drawn up again into heaven. At that very moment, three men stood before the house where I was, having been sent to me from Caesarea. Then the Spirit told me to go with them, doubting nothing. Moreover, these six brethren accompanied me, and we entered the man's house, and he told us how he had seen an angel standing in his house, who said to him, Send men to Joppa, and call for Simon, whose surname is Peter, who will tell you, Words by which you and all your household will be saved. And as began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them, as upon us at the beginning. And then I remembered the word of the Lord, how he had said, John indeed baptized with water, but you shall baptize with the Holy Spirit. If therefore God gave them the same gift as he gave us, when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could withstand God? When they heard these things, they became silent, and they glorified God, saying, Then God has also granted to the Gentiles repentance to life. Let's seek the Lord's blessing on this, His Word. O gracious God in heaven, we, we do praise You and thank You for Your Word, and we ask that You would just open our hearts and our ears and our minds to hear the truth that is here, that Your Spirit would apply these things and give us a greater understanding, and uh, especially that we might uh, apply these in our own hearts through the, through the working of Your Spirit. And so we just pray that You would now bless Your Word to us. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. <clears throat> well, here in Acts chapter 11, the Apostle Peter is recounting to the apostles and to the elders in Jerusalem the amazing events that transpired in his recent trip to the Mediterranean uh, coast, and specifically the city of Joppa. Uh, and, as the, and those events are recorded earlier in Acts chapter 10. Well, this entire passage, Acts 10 and Acts 11, is a really a significant section of, of the book of Acts and the growth and development of the early church because it begins to show really the fulfillment of the promise made by Jesus just before his ascension that the gospel would be, would be proclaimed in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And that's the, the theme verse of the book of Acts in Acts chapter 1 verse 8. 
Well, this would happen, of course, through the power of the Holy Spirit being poured out upon the apostles and upon other believers in Christ. Now, before Acts chapter 10, the converts to, uh, to Christ were uh, primarily faithful Jews who were looking forward to the coming of Messiah. Well, when they heard the gospel proclaimed to them, the Spirit enabled them to see and believe that Jesus Christ of Nazareth was actually that Messiah whom they had been hoping for and looking forward to. And again, most of these converts were those in and around Jerusalem and in various parts of Judea. Then in Acts chapter 8, we have Philip proclaiming the gospel in Samaria. And again, many of the Samaritans also believed but we have to remember that the Samaritans, though that they were hated by the Jews, they were actually kind of a mixed breed of people. They were part Jewish and they were also part Gentile as the, the Jews had intermingled with the people who had uh, been placed there uh, in that region of Samaria during the time of the uh, Assyrian and the Babylonian captivity. And so many of the Samaritans believed in the God of Israel but we know that they had devised their own place of worship contrary to God's command. Well, then when uh, Philip comes and begins to proclaim uh, the Christ as the Messiah, then, uh, then they believe truly and sincerely. And so Samaritans are now uh, enfolded into uh, the body of believers. But it's not until Peter's trip to the coast of uh, of the Mediterranean in Acts chapter 10 that the gospel truly goes specifically to the Gentiles. And of course we know later the Apostle Paul would be the one who would take it even deeper into uh, Gentile regions. And this is still kind of an area that would have been considered uh, part of uh, the ancient boundaries of Israel. Well, in the account of Acts 10, the preparation for this shift in the gospel is first made with Peter's uh, vision of that sheet with all the, uh, the unclean foods. And God was using that vision to teach Peter that the Gentiles who believed in Christ would be marked as clean. That is, uh, they would no longer be considered common or unclean. Well, it's then that Peter, uh, right after that vision, he has that vision. It's when there that he receives a word from Cornelius. Cornelius was a Roman centurion, a Roman citizen, so uh, not a Jew, although he was a God-fearer. He was a Gentile uh, convert to Judaism. And, uh, And so that's Cornelius. Well, he calls to have Peter come. Well, Peter, trusting in the leading of the Spirit, enters Cornelius' home and, of course, then proceeds to proclaim the gospel. And the end result is that Cornelius believes the gospel and that he and all his household are baptized. Well, then suddenly, as Peter testifies uh, of what happened there in Acts 10, that the Holy Spirit falls upon them, even as it did in the same way of the apostles in the upper room, And then, of course, these Gentiles, just as the apostles had done, the Gentiles began speaking in foreign tongues. And so there was clear evidence that this was uh, the same Spirit being poured out upon them. 
Well, then we come to Acts 11. Peter recounts these amazing events and the concluding response of the apostles when they hear these things. And again, the the circumcision, of course, that's going to be the the ones who later would become the Judaizers and uh, who would begin pressing this issue of uh, that Gentiles need to be uh, first become Jews before they become be, before they can become Christians, uh, but Peter here gives this account, and they uh, their response is not only their acknowledgement of uh, really how noteworthy this event was, but it's also from this verse, verse eighteen, from which the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter fifteen, gets its heading which is repentance unto life. And verse 18 of Acts 11, When they heard these things, they became silent and they glorified God, saying, Then God has also granted to the Gentiles repentance to life. And so just as faith is uh, in Christ is a gift of God's grace, so also is repentance unto life. Again, note carefully what the apostles say here in verse 18. When they heard these things, they became silent, and they glorified God, saying, Then God has also granted to the Gentiles repentance to life. No, God has granted it or given it. He has made it possible. Not because they were, they were worthy or somehow they had earned it, They, of course, were Gentiles. They were outside of the covenant community and and foreigners to the promises that God had given to Abraham. And yet, out of His abounding grace and mercy toward undeserving Gentiles, God granted this repentance unto life. Indeed, we know that no one, whether they're a Jew or a Gentile, no one can truly repent of their sins in their own strength. This requires, again, the work of the Holy Spirit to exchange the heart of stone with a living heart of flesh, even as is promised uh, in the New Covenant through Jesus Christ. The prophet Ezekiel says this, Ezekiel 36, Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, And you shall be clean, and I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will keep my judgments and do them. And so unless the spirit is at work in a person's heart, they're not going to repent. At least not truly and sincerely. They may have a general sorrow for their wrongdoing, but the proud heart won't humble itself unless it's been renewed and softened by the Spirit. And so we see that repentance, even repentance, is a gift. And if repentance is a gift, well then forgiveness, that which is sought through repentance, is also a gift. And that God is the one who gives forgiveness. Daniel 9, nine To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness, though we have rebelled against Him. And then Paul uh, says something similar. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of His grace. Right? Forgiveness comes to us through Jesus Christ and the riches of His grace poured out upon undeserving sinners. And that's in response to this being granted repentance. 
And so if repentance is a gift granted from God, then when one repents, there will also be this forgiveness. They come together. And so that's God's promise. And that's the great hope that we have. That when we repent of our sins, God is faithful and just to actually forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us and wash us from all unrighteousness. And forgiveness, of course, is important. Because in forgiveness, there is found a life before God. Which is why the apostles and the writers of the confession call this repentance unto life. Because without repentance, there will be no forgiveness. And without forgiveness, there will be no life. Again, the prophet Ezekiel, this time in chapter 18, says, Therefore I will judge you, O house of Israel. Everyone according to his ways, says the Lord God, repent and turn from all your transgressions, so that iniquity will not be your ruin. Cast away from you all the transgressions which you have committed, and get yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. For why should you die, O house of Israel? For I have no pleasure in the death of one who dies, says the Lord God. Therefore, turn and live. And the warning here is that the one who refuses to cast away all their transgressions through confession and repentance, the implication is that they will die in God's just judgment. And so we see that repentance truly leads to life. But what exactly is repentance? Well, repentance unto life involves two things. Repentance, the word repentance means to turn or to change direction. And so when we repent of our sins, we're actually turning away from our sin, but then also we're turning toward God. And so when we consider the idea of repentance being a turning away from sin, there are four components that are involved in this. First, in order to repent, we must acknowledge that we've sinned. Right? You can't Repent unless you know that you've sinned and that our sin is terrible and that our sins are are deadly and that we need to turn away from them. Of course, this is also called what we might call the conviction of sin. And it comes to us through the power of the Holy Spirit and the proclamation of God's word. The Puritan Thomas Vincent says of this conviction that it's an inward feeling of our miserable and low estate by reason of the wrath and curse of God, and that eternal vengeance of hell, which are for our sins we are exposed to and puts us into great perplexity and trouble of spirit, so that our consciences, being pricked and wounded, can find no quiet and take no rest in this condition. And so that's the conviction of the Spirit. And there are two, and that conviction ultimately will lead to us realizing we've sinned, and then leading to repentance, which leads to forgiveness and life. Well, there's two kinds of, two levels of, of conviction. <clears throat> there's an outward conviction. And so someone hears God's word and perhaps feels a sense of sorrow and grief for their sin. And yet they, they don't really turn from it for whatever reason, right? So they, they feel this sorrow, but they, they don't turn away from it. Jesus says in Matthew uh, or we read this, had this example uh, with Jesus' encounter with the, the rich young ruler, Matthew 19. But when the young man heard that saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Right? So he was filled with sorrow. He was convicted. But it was just an outward conviction because he 
did not turn away from his sin. He did not turn away from his idolatry and his pride and his uh, his greed. But he actually went right back to them. And then another example, Mark 6, we have Herod who was, uh, after he had prisoned John, Herod kind of toyed with John, would have John come out and, and uh, John would proclaim the gospel. And Herod kind of enjoyed this. And Mark 6, we read, For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a just and holy man, and he protected him. And when he heard him, he did many things and heard him gladly. Right? So he, there was a sense where Herod was kind of had this conviction, but he did not turn away from his sin. And so that's the outward conviction. That outward conviction of sin alone doesn't lead to true repentance. It's... Um, you need the, the deeper inward conviction. And that's a true conviction brought by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so this leads to true repentance and turning away from sin. Uh, earlier, uh, as Peter proclaimed uh, the gospel on the day of Pentecost, we read this, Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent, and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And of course, remember here, uh, Peter had been repeatedly telling them how they were responsible for putting Jesus to death. And eventually they were cut to the heart. And that's the conviction of the Spirit, the conviction for their sin, where they cry out, What do we do? How do we make it right? And the response is that they ought to repent and then be baptized, believing in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the Spirit pierces the hearts with the Word and brings about conviction of sin. And again, these early believers asked how they should respond, and Peter charged them to repent and embrace the salvation which Christ had secured for them. The next component of repentance, and so there's that conviction of sin, is one component of repentance. Another is uh, is critical because we must not only recognize that we've sinned, but you must also understand that there's hope in God, right? That there's hope for forgiveness. You see, because if we're only convicted of sin, but we're not made aware of any uh, hope of escape. Well, we would continue further headlong into our sin, that there was, thinking that there was nothing else that we could do, or we would be, just be devastated and distraught beyond belief to the point of utter despair. And like Judas, we might see death as the only escape. And that's the, the danger and the discussion last week or whatever about the, the law and the gospel, right? We need the, the law and preaching about the, uh, you know, the conviction of sin that, and pointing out how we've sinned against God, God, but we also need the hope, the hope of the gospel, what Christ has done. We need that hope so that we don't end, end up into utter despair and a great lack of assurance. And God does offer us hope based on His mercy and grace in Jesus Christ. <clears throat> 
And we know that this is because this is God's character. In Psalm 103, the Lord is merciful and gracious. He's slow to anger and abounding in mercy. He will not always strive with us, nor will He keep His anger forever. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor punished us according to our iniquities. For as the heavens are high above the earth, so great is His mercy toward those who fear Him. As far as the east is from the west, so far as He removed our transgressions from us. As a father pities his children, so the Lord pities those who fear Him. And then Paul in Romans 8 reminds us of the hope that we have, but God demonstrates His own love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And that, beloved, is the Gospel, and that gives us great hope, so that when we fall into conviction of the sin, we know that there's hope because of what Christ has done for us, and of God's great love and mercy and compassion toward us. Well, a third component of repentance <clears throat> is then grieving over our sin. Right? Once we've been enlightened that we're sinners and that God has offered us hope through Jesus Christ, well, then we come to realize that we've sinned before a most holy and just God. And this realization really brings us a deeper sorrow and sadness. Paul, in uh, writing to the, second, to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 7, says, Now rejoice, not that you are made sorry, but that your sorrow led to repentance. For you are made sorry in a godly manner, that you might suffer loss leading to salvation, not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. For observe this very thing, that you sorrowed in a godly manner, what diligence it produced in you, what clearing of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what vehement desire, what zeal, what vindication. In all things you proved yourselves to be clear in this matter. And so not only have we affected ourselves and others by our sin, but we have chiefly offended the most holy God. Right Again, this is what David sang of in, <clears throat> in Psalm 51. I acknowledge my transgression and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned. <clears throat> now the interesting thing there is David sinned. Uh, he sinned against Uriah. He sinned against Bathsheba. He sinned against uh, his wife. Uh, he sinned against the, the people of God who looked to him as, uh, as the king. And he sinned against himself. But the chief sin that he committed was against the holy and just God. And that of all the ones that he offended, that is the one that, mo- that he most feared. And so we grieve, and that's, again, that Psalm 51, David grieving for his sin. We grieve because we'll come to the realization that it was our sin, ultimately, that nailed Jesus to the cross. And so this deep grief for our sin readily makes it easier then for us to then hate our sin and to actually be able to turn from it. And that's the fourth component of repentance, is this hatred for our sin. A hatred so strong that we want to truly turn away from it. Again, in Ezekiel 36, Then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good, and you will loathe yourselves in your own sight for your iniquities and your abominations. Hating our sin is the same thing as putting off the old man of sin. 
Paul urges in Ephesians 4 that you put off concerning your former conduct, the old man which grows corrupt according to the lust, a deceitful lust. And you've been put, that old man has now been put to death in Christ. And so we acknowledge our sin. We come to realize that there's hope for forgiveness in Christ. We, we've grieved over our sin. We've hated it to the point where we despise it so much that we want to just turn away from it and put it to death. And put it as far away from us as we possibly can. But that's only one part of repentance. One half. Because if we turn away from sin, <clears throat> what do we turn to? We don't turn to another sin. We must turn to, towards someone or something. And that someone is God. Again, this God empowers us to do. Right? We turn away from our sin and then we turn toward God. And it's what the Spirit makes us willing to do uh, is to turn toward Him. And we do this when we humble ourselves before the Lord and we plead with Him for mercy and pardon for our sin. Again, David gives us a great example of this in Psalm 51. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies, blot out my transgression. David is laying it all before the Lord. He's humbling himself. Once puffed with pride, he's now humbling himself before God, turning to God, pleading for mercy and pardon. And also, in Jesus' parable, the Pharisee and the tax collector, the difference in their prayers are, compare, are compared. And, and there it's revealed that the tax collector was the one who truly turned to the Lord for mercy and pardon. Right? The tax collector stood afar off and he, and he couldn't even lift his face to the Lord. Instead, he just beat his breast with his head bowed because of his great sorrow and the offense that he had caused to the holy God. Whereas the Pharisee stood proudly and boasted of all that he had done and boasted of his own righteousness. Well, once we turn to the Lord for this mercy and forgiveness, we claim the promise that he's given and confirm that the Lord is truly our God and that he, uh, is, our, that he is our Lord and Savior. Right? That we, we come, we, we confess our sins, we repent, and we're coming before the Lord, humbling ourselves before Him. And again, we claim that promise that when we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and will truly cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And then finally, as the confession notes, that after we've repented and turned away from our sin and humbled ourselves before God and turning to Him, we must then commit ourselves with full purpose of an endeavor after new obedience. Even as Jesus told the women uh, caught in adultery after her accusers had all left. And Jesus said to her, you know, where have they all gone? Is no one here to condemn you? And she said, no. And he said, neither do I condemn you. But he didn't just tell her to go. He told her to go and sin no more. That he had forgiven her for her sin and that she needed to make this commitment to new obedience because she, needed, she now needed to turn away from her sin, to put it to death, and to commit herself to following the Lord Jesus Christ. And indeed, we commit to endure with the purpose to continue in the Lord who has granted us mercy, forgiveness, and life to press on and serve Him who has delivered from us from the condemnation of eternal death 
and has secured for us eternal life in His glorious presence forever. And again, it's all to the praise of His glorious name that we have this repentance unto life, a glorious gift that God has granted to us, all because of what Jesus Christ has done, all to the glory of God. Let's pray. O gracious God and Heavenly Father, we rejoice and give thanks that You are the giver of every good and perfect gift. And truly, repentance through the power of Your Spirit and falling under the conviction of our sin and being greatly humbled and turning to You and turning away from our sin is a true glorious gift so that we might be forgiven, so that we might have be reconciled to You, that we might have life that even in this life we experience a new life and commit ourselves to new obedience, seeking to serve and glorify You in all that we do. But we also have that sure and certain hope of eternal life and the age to come when Christ returns again in power and glory and that we shall live forever in Your glorious presence where there's fullness of joy. Father, we just praise You and thank You that You have given us these gifts. And again, we, that we can taste and experience them now, but we will more fully at that time. And we just praise You and thank You. And You would have, pray that You would uh, help us to be mindful as we, as we study Your Word, <clears throat> as we read it, as we hear it proclaimed, as we hear it sung, that Your Spirit would always, always be applying that Word to our hearts revealing to us our sin, that we might confess it and turn from it, so that we might live and walk in truth and righteousness. So we just praise you and thank you for all these things. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ we pray. Amen.